0: Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. All right, Revelation 11. Here we go. Revelation 11. Look in verse number 14. I'm gonna to start today with four words, all right? You ready for these four words? Four words that I think frame this entire section of scripture. So we're just gonna cover a little, a little snippet, 14 to 19. And if you're new, uh, know that our habit is to take a book of the Bible and just to work through it literally verse by verse and to allow the text to guide the conversation. Uh, That oftentimes puts us into conversations that I would have never chose for myself, but it prevents me as a pastor from hobby-horsing the Bible and constantly just preaching my favorite things. And it just allows the Bible to speak for itself, and it helps you understand the Bible a lot better. So just a little little portion, 14 to 19, and I have four words, okay, that that really summarize kind of the, the whole thing. And the four words are same action, opposite reaction. Same action, opposite reaction. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation like that where there was an action that everyone agrees like, hey, this is what happened. But the reaction to what happened is completely divergent. Ever have that? Uh, The best example that I can think of for me would be uh, in my marriage when my wife was pregnant with our second born. I should, I should have asked her permission to share this, but I don't think it's embarrassing, so I should be good. Forgive me if I didn't, if it's embarrassing. <laughs> She's pregnant with Willow. Uh, I am kind of just starting work at the church here, really. And there was a Wednesday. Wednesday, I go to work, and then we have Wednesday Bible studies, and we have a Wana for Kids, and a whole program on Wednesday. If you've never come to it, free plug. You should come to it. It's great. And I decided I was gonna stay through. I was just gonna work until seven and then do the stuff and then come home a longer day, you know, to work from eight to nine or whatever. But I was gonna do that and I didn't have any dinner. And someone, I forget who, someone in the office picked up on that I was working through and I didn't plan for it, I didn't have a dinner. And they went to Wendy's and they got me some sort of burger and some fries from Wendy's and brought it to me. Very kind, super considerate. But I knew my wife at this point in time in, in her pregnancy with Willow, loved the sea salt fries from Wendy's. And I think she likes them now, but for whatever reason, it was just kind of one of those cravings that she had. So I'm hungry, I eat my burger, I ate a couple of the fries, but I decide, being the good husband that I am, that I would take these fries, set them to the side, and I would bring them home for Maggie, for her to enjoy, right? So we go to church, we had driven separately, we get home, it's nine o'clock, and I I present Maggie with a 75% full little box of sea salt fries from Wendy's. And, I, and this is the action that happened. I gave her sea salt fries. I know this, she knows this. Now her reaction to my action was different than I had anticipated. <laughs> I thought that I was gonna get like a husband of the year award. You know, I thought, you know, you're so considerate. Certainly you were hungry, but you save these for me. You're such a kind person, you know? But her reaction was not that way. And she assumed that I had left church, driven to Wendy's, ordered myself some food, didn't think about her at all, didn't call her, didn't consider her, You know, she's pregnant at home, she probably wants something, didn't think about her, was eating my food on the way home and then decided, oh, stink, she's gonna pick up on this, I better save her my leftovers, you know? That's what she assumed. So as we worked through the scenario, she realized that I really was good-hearted and I got a little bit of credit for it, but it was this action where I gave her fries, but my reaction of thinking I'm great and her reaction of thinking I'm a a loser was very, very different, right? In this text, you have some action, really one big action, that is Jesus is assuming the kingdoms of the world. This is the action in the text. But what you'll find is that there are very different reactions from two sets of people and I want us to read it, and I want us to to understand it. It's not a complicated text, but it's a really important one. So here we go. Verse number 14. This is the third woe on earth. I will not review the first and the second woe. We're at the third and the last woe. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe comes quickly. Verse 15, here it is. The seventh angel sounded. There were great voices in heaven, saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ." and he shall reign forever and ever. And if you're familiar at all with Handel's Messiah, you probably had that refrain just go through uh, the melody, come through your mind that he shall reign forever and ever. That's where he got it from. It was right here in Revelation, the centerpiece of, of that masterpiece. But what you find is this third woe on earth becomes the subject matter of thankful worship in heaven. Verse number 16, very different reaction here. The four and 20 elders which sat before God on their seats, we've already covered this group of people, likely the representatives of all the redeemed. I don't know for sure, but likely the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, Old Testament and New Testament saints, there, and what do they do? They fall on their faces and they worship God and they say, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art, and was an art to come because thou hast taken to thee great power, thy great power, and you have reigned. And the nations, uh, they were angry. Thy wrath has come the time, uh, the, and the time of the day, excuse me, that they should be judged And that thou shouldest give reward unto the servants and prophets and to the saints and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and you should destroy them which destroy the earth. And you can see even in that one verse how it ping pongs back and forth that the nations are angry, but the righteous are being rewarded, and those that are destroying the earth will be destroyed. And it's just going back and forth here. Verse 19 the temple of God was opened in heaven, kind of a change of pace, honestly. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament or the ark of the covenant. If only Indiana Jones would have known that it was there the whole time. You know, he could have saved himself a search. The, the, the earthly one was a replica of the heavenly one. Hebrews tells us this, that the tabernacle and the temple and, and even the, the altar and the covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant are, are a replica of what is in heaven. And you see this here, the temples opened and you see the innermost part, this Ark of the Covenant representing God's presence with man and there was lightnings and voices and thunders and earthquake and great hail and this whole sight and sound reality that is big and bombastic. Now what's happening here? Well, what's happening is the nations are angry and the saints are happy. Very different reactions. Now, why are the nations angry and why are the saints happy? Well, the same action. What is that action? The action is that Jesus is assuming the kingdoms of the earth and establishing himself as king of kings and Lord of lords. That's what's happening. The nations are raging and heaven is rejoicing. There's cursing on earth and there's crowning in heaven. There's these divergent reactions to Jesus assuming the kingdoms of the world. Now you may say, pastor, what do you mean he is becoming king of kings or lord of lords or he's assuming the kingdoms? Like I already thought Jesus was king of kings and lord of lords and that is true but certainly in a fuller way, this is being materialized. And while it is true that God is sovereign and that God owns the earth, all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns it all and everything in it. God has ownership, but he does not fully occupy the earth in the sense that he will here. This is why, It could be said of Satan that he is the quote-unquote prince of this world. You would see that terminology used in the Bible. Why? Well, God owns the earth, but he is allowing Satan to temporarily occupy it to some degree. This is what Revelation even says in greater form, that some of the judgments are God unleashing the abyss and allowing the minions of hell to have greater occupancy of his earth. But there is coming a day when Satan and his minions are forcefully evicted, and no longer welcomed, and King Jesus becomes the king of all of the kingdoms of the earth and now occupies, and that is a day that is in the future. And this is the stuff that prophecy is made of. Like if you took your Bible and you decided that you just wanted to ring it out, you would get a a few mega themes that come out of it. And one of those mega themes would be this instance, these moments of prophecy that where God now takes full occupancy and Jesus is installed, if I could say it that way, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is what Daniel talked about. When he talked about the ancient of days who had all of the kingdoms and gives them to the son of man and that his kingdom now is there to stand forever. This is what Revelation has already talked about to some degree. This is really what the back half of Revelation is all about. Like this little snippet that you see here in verse number 14 through 19 is the river that will flow through chapters 12 to 22. The back half of Revelation all points really in this direction, that there is coming this time where the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our God and they are given to Christ to rule and to reign forever. And heaven rejoices at this. If you've ever played checkers, you may, you may get this. Small known fact about me, other than that, I'm a great husband. We already covered that earlier. Um, is that I've played checkers and we had like state competitions in Kentucky where I grew up. And I'm a seven time state checker champion. Now, checkers isn't that complicated, so it's not a lot to hang your hat on. But nevertheless, <laughs> I've played a lot of checkers. And if you ever want to play, let's, let's go, you know. We'll download an app and we can do it. But what's the goal of checkers? Well, the goal is to conquer everybody. But how do you do that? Primarily by moving your man into king's row, right, on the other side of the board. And then when you put your man in king's row, crown me, king me, right? And this is saying that all of history is his story. And all of history is headed in this direction where Jesus will be put on king's row and crown me will happen. And he will be the king of the world. That he will reign in a different way with justice and with righteousness and with wisdom and with love and with glory in a way that no earthly king has ever ruled and reigned before. But it's headed in that direction. Now, this idea of Jesus being the true king and Jesus ruling and reigning is one that we have, we have mixed reactions to. And we're kind of like a a bundle of conflict when it comes to this. Because on one hand, this is the stuff that like our legends are made of. This is the stuff that like really rings the bell for us when we get into our stories, right? This is like the Robin Hood story. There was a king And the king was here and everything was splendid and everything was flourishing and in relationships and civilization and the military and the economy, it was all flourishing, but the king has gone away for some reason. And now things are dark and now things are rough and now things are bad, but one day the king will come back. And what's Robin Hood doing? In the, in the middle of this, before Richard the Lionheart can come back from war and make everything right and whole and beautiful again, Robin Hood is doing his best to hold it down and to, and to stem the darkness, right? This is what King Arthur and Camelot and that whole story is about. That when Arthur rules and reigns, oh man, it's awesome. But when Arthur's gone, man, the Knights of the Round Table, they struggle to hold it together. But what does Arthur's tombstone say? Here lies Arthur, the once and future king. Here lies the one who was, who was great, he was awesome, and he's, he's coming again. This really is the heartbeat of Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, mythical series. More of a modern legend, and, and that books are there and movies are there, and now there's a TV show about part of it and those sorts of things. But what's the centerpiece really of the Lord of the Rings? Well, if you know the story, the centerpiece is that there's a true king in the north who's hidden. And when that king is revealed, man, healing is in his hands, and everything is going to be beautiful right? These are the stories that we write. These are, there's something in us that craves this and wants this. And even in our, in our democratic republic, there's some part of us that gets a little vestige of this when we do our elections every two years, I know, but really every four years, and we get our hopes up, right? We get our political candidates. We get behind them. We're hopeful that we can vote for them and that they will be installed. And then, oh yeah, they did win. And then we're hopeful that our candidate will come and that they will bring change and that they will they will restore things and they will, they will bring about the goodness that we know could be in our society, in our community, in our country. And, and we get this, what it's like to kind of hang our hat and our emotions and our hopes on some sort of political leader. This, this is like in us. But on the other hand, we know it's like to be deep, deeply disappointed by political leaders and those that have lived under monarchies And a monarchy, a true monarchy is very different than what we have as a system of government. And I'm not really advocating for one or the other. But we've understood over the course of time that true monarchies are really, really hard to come by to find one that's good. And I hate to give you like a civics lesson, but why? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but true monarchs, they have to do everything well. There is no division of government. The legislative branch is on the king. And the king makes the rules and the king makes the laws. And it's up to the king to make sure that the laws are just and fair and equitable and to to decree those laws and to put them into account. And in a a true monarchy, the king does that unilaterally. Like it or lump it, doesn't matter. Here's the law, the end. But the king is also the judiciary. The king is the one who has to, to figure out, is this law right? Are they abiding by the law? Does the punishment fit the crime? And to figure that out. And the king is also the executive branch who declares this is the way things are and leads the military and the king does everything in a real monarchy. He has all these hats that he has to wear and he has to modulate quickly and and very efficiently and effectively between this role and this role and this role and this role and And he has to do it all and what we figured out as humans is that we've really struggled to find somebody that can do all that. That it hasn't worked. So our monarchies by and large have been replaced by constitutional monarchies where the monarchy is just a like in England, show more or less. The queen or the king doesn't really make decisions for the people. The prime minister in in parliament does that. Or they've been replaced with a democratic republic, something like our system of government, because what have we understood? Here's, Here's all I'm trying to say. It's a long way of saying this. Deep down inside, there's some sort of craving that we all have that, man, I wish I had a ruler who ruled with wisdom and justice and love. And and when he made decisions that, that were right and we could trust, we could really hitch our wagon to that person. And if he did that well, it would be good for all of us. There's this craving in us for that. But there's also the real life today where we struggle to find that ever. And we, and we can't produce it. And that's not to mention that the, a system of a monarchy and kingship flies in the face of our autonomy. Because when you have a king, you bow the knee. Long live the king. It's not about you. And you don't get to make the rules. And in America, what is a high, high, high value? Rugged individualism? and wanting to be autonomous. And this is baked into the fabric of our society, is it not? Because what did we do? We threw the king off our back. We're Americans, right? We said, King George, go pound salt, get out of here. No taxation without representation. What did, I know we didn't declare it, but what did our American forefathers declare? That's what they said. What does that mean? You can't make a law taxing me without getting my input. You can't unilaterally just say, tax, the end. We need representation. We need to have a voice. We need, to, we need to have a part in this, right? So we get fed up and we say, we declare our independence. No more kings for us. A whole new system of government we will come up with. We don't know what it'll be, but we'll figure it out in due time. We declare our independence and we, we are going to say, don't tread on me. That's in our like societal blood, Right? this idea of independence and autonomy, and and there is no king, but this text says there is coming a day, whether you're a true democracy or a democratic republic or a constitutional monarchy or a monarchy or anything in between, there is coming a day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. And he gives, gives those to his Christ, to Jesus, and that Jesus will rule and reign. And the reaction to that in this text is that it is woe to the people of earth who do not want this, and it is wow to the saints of heaven who say, come on, King Jesus. That there are two very different reactions to what it would mean to have Jesus as a king. And some say we're angry, and some say this means judgment, this this means destruction, this I do not want to bow the knee, and this is this is this is a woe to me. And others say I want to thank God. He is going to not only rule and reign, but distribute his righteousness, and he is going to give rewards to his people, and his goodness will be our goodness, and we will share in the glory. And man, this is awesome. And here's the point of today's sermon. The point is not just for you to understand what this text is talking about, but the goal is very simply this, to let you know that this text says the Jesus we worship is King Jesus. And to think about what that means for your life. Because while this is a future-oriented text, this has profound implications for your day-to-day life, like this week. This says that who we worship, when we, we sang this morning, I don't know if, if you uh, noticed it, he is exalted, the king is exalted. We just sang that. What do we mean by that? We mean that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I love how Adrian Rogers said it. He said that while Jesus came the first time to a crucifixion, he's coming again to a coronation. He came the first time to, a, to shame, but he's coming again to splendor. He came the first time to a tree, but he's coming again to a throne. He came the first time as a servant, but he's coming again as a sovereign. The savior is the sovereign. The justifier is the judge. The redeemer is the ruler. They're one in the same. They're not they're not separate. They're one in the same. Now, immediately this smacks some people in the face. Because this doesn't fit with the version of Jesus that they've created for themselves or for their church. Because we have all kinds of different versions of Jesus that float around in our society that are (laughs) man-made, right? There's the tame Jesus. He's portrayed a lot in the arts and a lot of people just think of Jesus in this way. Very docile, you know, a slightly more masculine version of a L'Oreal Paris, like makeup model, right? Long, silky hair, smooth skin, frame of a 16-year-old. Your little sister could beat him up. You know that one? Like that exists in our culture and people just think of Jesus as a super docile, tame, quiet, meek. And that's not King Jesus. This talks about that he takes the power, that he assumes the throne, that he is the one that can be the legislative branch and the judiciary and the executive branch. He can do it all and handle it all and he can rule and reign. This goes against even baby Jesus and I like baby Jesus. I love Christmas. I'm thankful for the incarnation. But Jesus isn't baby Jesus anymore. You know that? Like, we don't just sing him lullabies. Jesus came. We're grateful for that, that he humbled himself, that he became man. He, he died. We are grateful for that. We worship that he dies for our sins, that he saves us from our sins. He resurrected. We worship him for that. Easter's coming in a few weeks. Dave mentioned all you planners. Easter's coming. We'll worship him for that. He ascended, but it doesn't stop there. That's not the end of the story. Jesus comes in power and in glory and rules and reigns. And we need to think about King Jesus. This goes against the the idea of American Jesus. And this is very popular in churches where people take the kingdom of God and wrap it in an American flag and call it a a day. And Jesus isn't here to advance your political agenda, nor mine. Be involved, be a good citizen, have opinions on politics, vote, great. But don't use Jesus as, as the one who's gonna get your political agenda done. If I read Revelation right, Jesus doesn't ride a donkey uh, nor an elephant. He's riding a white horse. He doesn't belong to one political party. And people want to take Jesus and just make him the political Jesus, and that doesn't work. This is talking about King Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it means very simply is what the text says, that if you don't know Jesus and he's not your Savior, you're probably not going to like that and that may be some of you in the room. that are like, I don't, mm, mm." no thanks. But for the other group who declare that Jesus is Lord, who say that Jesus has saved me from my sin and he is the King of Kings, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that should be the subject matter of rejoicing. That should be the subject matter of praise and honor and glory And we should think about what it means for us to have Jesus as our king. Now, here's my goal. To say, this is Jesus. The Jesus we worship is King Jesus. But to help you think through, here's what that means for you. So I'm gonna give you a king code. Four points. I don't alliterate very often. Or I'm sorry, I don't use acrostics very often, I should say. But today, you get an acrostic. So here's the king code. There's four things you should know. The first one is a C. Consent. When someone is the king, in order for them to be your king, you have to consent to that. There's this idea in every every monarch who's ever reigned that there are people that say, long live the king. I am behind that person. I am glad that they are the king and I I will wave the palm branches. I will celebrate. I will shoot the confetti cannons. I will do whatever I can to celebrate this. Then there's a whole nother group of people that say, long live the king. And they plot and they plan mutinies and treason and they want to do everything they can to overthrow that and to subvert that and to get away from that. And those who truly say that Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, they start by consent and saying, Jesus, you get to call the shots. We are okay with this. We welcome this. We want this in our lives. You lead, I'll follow. I'll play follow the leader. You lead, you call the shots. Even if, even if I don't love it circumstantially. Wasn't Job this way? Remember Job 23? Where Job has gone through the ringer. I mean, the world is caving in on his head. And what does Job say? God, I can't really sense your presence. And God, I'm kind of scared. But I know that when you try me, I will come forth as pure gold. That's a moment in Job's life where he says, God, I don't like this. And God, it scares the fire out of me, but I am going to consent to you and trust you. And I will trust that you will use this to purify me and to help me. What is Job doing? He's signing off on the reality that you're the king and you call the shots and I consent. Not my will, but thy will. That's what it's about. So not only do you consent, you have to obey. Here's the deal. Every king has rules. Everyone who's ever lived had some rules. Some kings had some good rules, some kings had some bad rules. Jesus has a whole lot of good ones. But he has some. And it's the job of the subjects to obey what the king decrees. That's how it works. Ever hear the phrase, your wish is my command? What let's forget that for a second. What about your commands are my command? Okay, why don't we why don't we start there? Because there are some commands. Like, don't lie even on your taxes. Ooh, gotcha. <laughs> Tax season, right? Well, I mean, no one's going to know. If, if they audit me, I can make it right. I mean, this will put more money in my pocket and I, I can help somebody who really needs it. I'm going to give some of it to Light of Life Rescue Mission. You know, I can, don't lie. It's not hard. Well, it is hard, but it's not complicated. Don't lie. He has rules. Hey, here's how sexuality should go. Use sex. It's a gift. It's beautiful. Use it as a, as a way to affirm a covenant with your spouse. Don't use it as a way to just go pursue your own ends and find pleasure wherever you want. Don't misconstrue it. Don't mess it up. He has rules. Forgive. Like, like when, when do I forgive? Like, all the time. What do you mean all the time? Like, If you only knew the situation, I mean, my mother in law is a piece of work. I'm telling you, like, God, you would not want me to forgive her this often. How about like 70 times seven? Well, how many is that? Like, just keep doing it. Forgive. But I don't really want to. It's his rule, not yours. This is how it works in a kingship. He sets the rules you obey. Stop nursing the grudge, stop reliving and retelling. I understand that they hurt you. Really, I I do. I get it. They were probably 100% wrong. I will not argue with you about that. I'm not saying they weren't wrong. I'm not saying that it didn't hurt. I'm I'm not saying that, that somehow they should be off the hook eternally. But let God sort that out and you forgive. Don't hurt yourself. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. It is a yoke, it is a burden, but it is easier and lighter and better if you do it His way. And you forgive your enemies, you bless them that curse you, you pray for them which despitefully use you. You say, I don't like that. I know, but they're His rules. He's the king. It's our job to consent, it's our job to obey. Not only that, we consent, we obey, we depend. Now, I know that this one is, is especially difficult for Americans who want to act like we have our act together to feel as though I'm a dependent. Because some of us know what it's like to hitch our wagon to someone else and to be deeply devastated by it. Right? Right? I didn't choose to hitch my wagon to my mom and dad, but they were my mom and dad. And let me tell you, one of them or both of them, man, they were the worst. I was their dependent and they hurt me. You know what? I hitched my wagon to that relationship and they, they said they loved me. They said they cared for me. They said they had my best interest at heart. But fast forward the tape and what you know it, they didn't love me and they didn't have their best interest at heart. All they cared about was themselves and they hurt me and they used me and I'm worse off for it. Right? This, is, this is real life. That's where we live many times, right? And all of a sudden we get real skittish about being dependent upon anybody and we wanna become individualistic, autonomous. I'll never never declare myself dependent upon them again. I have to stand on my own two feet. I have to take care of myself. This is what I have to do. But having a king means you're dependent on the king. Part of having a king, and this is why we don't like monarchies, but part of having a king is when they make a rule, it will affect you positively or negatively. When they make a law, it'll affect you positively or negatively. When they make a judgment call, it'll affect you positively or negatively. What the Bible teaches is that Jesus will make rules and Jesus will make judgment calls, but Jesus will do it in wisdom and in justice and in love and that he will be a king unlike any king you've ever had. The one that you want, the one that you crave, the one that we try to model richer the. Lionheart or Arthur or the king of the north or any of them after that he's that king and you can depend upon him you have to depend upon him for him to be your savior it's a non-negotiable the way someone comes to faith is to say not by my works I don't depend on me I don't depend on my works I put my faith in the Lord Jesus what are you doing You are 100% depending on him for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, for a home in heaven, for eternal life. You are depending upon him. That's what faith is. Your relationship with Jesus cannot start without you being declared a dependent. And really your relationship with Jesus can't go very far unless you continue to be a dependent. So the million dollar question is this. If Jesus had a tax form to fill out, he wouldn't lie. Would he declare you as a dependent or not? Because you should be. When someone is the king, practically speaking, it means you bow the knee and you consent. It means you obey the rules that they set up. And it means that you depend upon them. But lastly, and I love this, it means that you expect. It means that you have, you have hopes that are sky high and that you are, you are not pessimistic at all, but you are entirely optimistic about what this king could deliver. That you have bound up your fate with theirs. You have hitched your wagon to them. And you know that if they rule and reign well, then that will be good for you. You know that you will share in the rewards. That's what the text talks about, is rewarding the prophets and the saints and all these people and ruling and reigning with Jesus. And if you have a king who's that big, that powerful, that, that good, then your hope should be through the roof. And this is what, I hate to give you the things that irk me because it just sounds super negative, but I'm gonna give you something that just irks the fire out of me. Is when Christians say, yeah, King Jesus. But then they have expectations of Jesus that are so little. Yeah, Jesus is the king of kings. And I mean, he's, he's going to rule and reign over everything. And he's, he's big enough and smart enough and strong enough. I mean, he's, he's God. He, he can be the judicial and the legislative and the executive. He can do it all. But my problems, man, you don't know. My problems are too complicated. I don't know if Jesus can help me with those. How does that make sense? How does it make sense that he's great enough to rule the world, but he's not great enough to deliver you from your addiction? Like, come on, if your expectations are that low, you have misconstrued who Jesus is. Part of him being your king is not just you bowing the knee and submitting, but it's doing it with a hope that is sky high to know that he's big and strong and powerful and that he can handle whatever it is that you got. And I'm not belittling what you got. I know you have hurt. I know you have strongholds. I know you have addictions. I know you have things that are, that are complicated and messy. I get all that, but Jesus is big enough and strong enough and wise enough and powerful enough to deliver you from that, yeah, to help you find freedom, to help you find purpose, to help you find joy and peace. He has to be. It's one or the other. Either he's big enough to be a king or he's not. And if he is, and if the text is true, man, that's stuff that you can worship about. That's stuff you can get excited about. That's something that should thrill you. I love how, the way that John Newton put it. He wrote a little poem that I think became a hymn. I'm not sure. It's called, Thou Art Coming to a King. And he, and he summed it up so well. It's, it makes so much sense. He said, thou art coming to a king, so large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. You know what Newton just said? He said, if you're coming to a king, come big. Go for broke. If you're coming to a king and his grace and his power are the way that we think they are, then do not be guilty of small thinking. Do not be guilty of of safe living. Do not be guilty of declaring that you have a big king, but have small faith. Now he's working it out. He's working out the implications of what it means to have a king. That if you have a king, you can expect a lot. There's never going to be a day where you come to him and say, hey, Jesus, this is my request. And he says, great idea. I'd love to deliver if I could, but I'm just fresh out of power, you know? Susie came earlier and she, she sucked it all out of me and I'm just worn out right now. I got a headache and I just, I just can't think about it right now. But that's not the Jesus you serve. If his grace and his power are so big and so vast, if it's true what the Bible says about Jesus, then what does that mean for you? It means that you should trust him big. It means you should take the leap of faith. It means that you should ask boldly and that you shouldn't shortchange him. Dude, please do not be guilty. And I am in my own life on many occasions. I'll be the first to confess. But as a church, let's not be guilty of declaring big, great Jesus, but then treating him like a little pauper. If he's big, great Jesus, then let's treat him like big, great Jesus. Jesus. Let's expect a lot and let's move through life as hopeful and as optimistic as we possibly could be while at the same time bowing, consenting, obeying and allowing him to rule and reign in our lives.